Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with actor Wendell Pierce. The veteran actor has made a name for himself on television, in movies, and on the stage. The New Orleans native is an acting tour de force. From the big screens waiting to exhale, to television's The Wire, to his current project, starring as Willie Loman on Broadway, and the Arthur Miller classic, Death of a Salesman. This latest role, one he calls the role of a lifetime, is one that didn't actually start in the United States. It started overseas, in London. Yeah, I was first offered the role uh, to study at the Young Vic Theater, which is a major theater that does uh, remountings of classic, classic plays. And got the opportunity to do it there. I had never worked in London, and I, it was something that I always wanted to do. It's, uh, it was 40 years in the making, really. And then we got an opportunity to move it to uh, the West End, you know, which is the equivalent of Broadway yeah. in London, uh, and a great success there. And we closed with the hope that uh, we would be bringing it to New York. Uh, but we closed on January 4th, 2020. And so there was a little thing called the pandemic that happened. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of put a pause on things. So while I did it at all of 19, um, it is a three-year hiatus, really. Yeah. Uh, 
And now getting back to the play uh, has been a real uh, eye-opening experience, a, a great challenge, uh, something that um, is a high watermark in my career and in my life. Um, and one of the things that uh, an actor can only dream of and hope for that challenges them uh, emotionally, it challenges them uh, physically, it challenges you know their ability uh, uh, to just be an actor, create a world so strong that it induces behavior. The idea of taking on what is an American classic, um, and you know, from one of the masters, uh, Arthur Miller, was it at all daunting for you? Or was it just something you really wanted to do? Absolutely, I would be. Uh, I would be a liar to say it wasn't daunting. I put thirty-four years into this firm, Howard, and now I can't pay my insurance. You can't eat the orange and throw the peel away. A man is not a piece of fruit. As I always say, uh, the opportunity presented itself. Um, you know what football player wouldn't want to play in the Super Bowl? Exactly. Exactly. You know, no matter who they're playing against, or whatever, no matter what the odds. Uh, what uh, musical performer wouldn't want to debut at Carnegie Hall? Mm -hmm. Not only to come back to Broadway, which is a great, um, you know, milestone, and always, whenever you get to do a play on, broad on Broadway, but also to do this play in particular, which had just a small group of men who have played the role in the 70-year history. Five men. Yeah. Lee J. Cobbs, George C. Scott, Dustin Hoffman, Brian Dennehy, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. So that is a very austere group that I'm <laughs> joining. So the pressure would be on. I also think of another austere group, which is men like Ozzie Davis, and Roscoe Lee Brown, and Earl Hyman, Sidney Poitier, um, who were denied the opportunity to play mm -hmm. the role because of the ignorance of our culture and uh, the prohibition and cultural uh, discrimination. Um, or the lack of vision to see them in the role. And uh, so I've been given this great opportunity and to those which great things are given to, great things are expected. And so that is a daunting challenge, but I welcome the challenge. Here's what's uh, sad to some degree. Set in 1949, many of the uh, issues that Willie Loman faces are issues that people face today. Uh, mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting because there's in, in this family being black portrayed, uh, in this run while race is not spoken front and center, the idea of it is implicit. It is implied there. Uh, and I think it just adds an extra element. And I think it was great that you could have easily changed it and put it more up front. but I think the idea of letting it play out as it does, and let the audience feel it was brilliant. Yeah, because th that was uh, intentional uh, because we wanted to show how microaggressions along with macroaggressions, institutionalized racism, institutionalized cultural expectations of racism, of you are expected to be uh, a second-class citizen. You are expected to accept things the way they are. And if you don't, there will be consequences. And the slightest things can express that. So many people come up and ask us, oh, you changed that, right? Mm -hmm. I don't remember that. People who are familiar with the play 
when I am with a mistress, a white woman, uh, I actually say, and this is 1930, uh, at this point it's 1932, this is a flashback, mm -hmm. I say to her, there may be a law, I think there's a law in Massachusetts mm -hmm. about, mm -hmm. about us being caught together in this hotel room. And people automatically assume we put that in there. And so, oh, well, yeah, of course, we realize that, that, you know, the racial danger that was in that moment, uh, you had to put that in to make sure people knew. And I said, no, that was in the play, right? Because at that time, being unmarried. Unmarried, yeah. Time, right? But uh, you heard the racial implication of what it would be like if a black man is caught with this white woman one year after the Scottsboro Boys. Mm -hmm. And we know that the, the, the uh, incidents with a black man and a white woman has been the spark of so many dangerous, violent outcomes in America. Tulsa, Rosewood, um, uh, you know, it goes on and on. And the, the Scottsboro Boys, uh, so many lynchings. Uh, and of course, Emmett Till, you know, just the look or perceived whistle to a white woman. Uh, cause his death, right? And so just that implication. She has the line, I hope no one sees me like this in the hall, undressed. Mm -hmm. And she's saying that to two black men that she's leaving in this hotel room, one being my son, who I now have endangered him. And that is an implicit, uh, actually explicit threat mm -hmm. of saying, if I walk out here, I can easily, scream rape and you would be killed you know so it's uh that we wanted to make sure that people saw that was implicit in the play here's what's interesting to me about the loman character character and i wonder how it hit you if you are a man of a certain age uh you can identify with that character in terms of just reflection and where you are in your life and what you would hope to be and and where where, where you may be in reality they always, uh, you know, question whether those two roads meet. I'm curious, uh, you know, was it cathartic at all? Did it make you reflect? Uh, wh where did you sit on that personally? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you can't do a role like this and not delve into a, a deep self-reflection. Yeah. Uh, and look at uh, your own life, disappointments you may have, or the triumphs you've had also. Um, if you live to be this age, of course, there will be uh, uh, expectations that were not met, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I try to remind myself of that so it doesn't uh, completely debilitate me, you know? Uh, I've looked at my own life and realized, okay, um, I still have opportunities to make choices that will be redemptive mm -hmm. and uh, and rectifying and um and one is actually creation of family you know being on this career pursuit so much i i've never created a family i'm looking forward to to kind of shifting gears and trying to do that um then also just uh missing missing people mm -hmm. you know the one thing that happened with Willie Loman is in this day, and this play just takes a day. Um, you realize that he's alone in the world. He's orphaned. He is 
calling his, the memory of his brother back is triggered by a letter that he received that his brother's dead. He never knew his father because mm -hmm. his father was gone so early in his life. Uh, his mother died, he says, a long time ago. And that's his immediate family, and he feels orphaned. But what he didn't realize is if he ever took the blinders off, he would see the love of the family that he has created. And he's, his two sons and his loving wife uh, and realized that he was wealthy in love. You have a, an extraordinary cast, and uh, obviously Andre DeShields, uh, you know, a, a Broadway favorite there, plays the brother. Uh, but I also, uh, you know, would note um, Sharon D. Clark, who plays the wife, is extraordinary uh, in yeah. that. I, I would imagine the cast has been able now to, to get a rhythm and play off each other. It must be. I remember Sam Jackson telling me that when you get a cast that is really good, it's like a team that you play yeah. off of each other and there's a hum, if you will. You're, are you finding that? Absolutely. There's a chemistry that you almost, you become, you start to become a living, breathing being, a collaboration that creates this, it, its own rhythm and heartbeat. And so even the slightest change of a rhythm, you get to play off of each other. Um, the great thing about Death of a Salesman is the fact that it's so layered, you know, flashbacks within a flashback, which we come back to the reality and they go back to a flashback and then come back. Um, it is so layered with uh, um, paradoxes, you know, and 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 the complexity that we're always mining uh, the material for more and more. So it's always feeding us. It's like an uh, it's like a, an engine, a combustible engine. Uh, Wenton Marsalis is a friend of mine. I grew up with him, and he. He wrote me, he's on the road, he said, how is it going? And I said, man, I am, I am shedding and swinging at the same time. <laughs> shedding where you are always kind of practicing, the jazz musician is always shedding. It's the equivalent of you have created the work, you are now presenting it to the audiences, you have the set chord changes, but you get to improvise within those chord changes every night because you still have musical ideas. And you, so you're always kind of working on those musical ideas. And those are, for me, the emotional ideas that can continually fuel the fire and the engine of the play. And Sharon D. Clark has done something that I think is, um, is historic, really, because she has taken a role that normally can be seen as a doormat of a woman who is just tolerant of uh, the toxicity of, of of Willie, and she has made it emblematic of the strength of black women mm -hmm. in the face of so many obstacles, even within their own families and communities, and how they are the linchpin of holding things together. And she has taken this role and she has made it um, uh, an, an equal to Willie. Willie Loman never made a lot of money. His name was never in the paper. He's not the finest character that ever lived. But he's a human being. And a terrible thing is happening to him. We have created something together um, that, you know, in my lowest points, I always reach for Linda. I realized that the other day, not even knowing, not even conscious of it. Like in my 
worst moments in the play, I'd literally reach out to my mm -hmm. wife mm -hmm. physically. And it was, it just shows you how acting is that it creates, you create the world so strong, it induces the behavior. I wasn't even conscious of that wow. until like last night, I went, oh man, every time I'm at my lowest ebb, I always reach for Linda. And I thought that was a beautiful thing. Wow. Wow. Talk to me about stage work for you. Uh, you know, a lot of actors will talk about, Denzel told me once about the excitement of Broadway for him, you know, I mean, known as a movie star, but he said, mm -hmm. for me, just the excitement of hitting that stage, you know, doing a live play, the, the play between you and the audience, you know, the energy you feel or don't feel any given night. Yeah. Yeah. The, the audience in live theater is another uh, actor in the scene. You feel the energy they give you and that you reciprocate and give that are giving to them. You feel when there's not a connection. So you fight for that connection, that you get that connection by the end of the evening. And uh, it's always a thrill. And then there's also um, the idea that for that particular night at that place and in that moment of time, it is only us, these few hundreds of people who will experience this moment. And for that, that is a precious thing. I do not take that for granted. You know, I'm going to the theater tonight, but that means nothing to the people who were there last night, mm -hmm. means nothing to the people who will be there tomorrow, because it will be that performance that they will remember, that they will, that will motivate people. I remember where I was when I saw As You Like It in, in Stratford, with Kate Nelligan. So whenever I see or hear Kate Nelligan and As You Like, I remember that. I remember when I saw Roscoe Lee Brown visit and read poetry in New Orleans. It, it changed me. I was there opening night for uh, uh, James Earl Jones and Fenstis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, and those are moments we'll take with us, memories we'll take with us forever. And so that's why I always try to do theater. I try to do a film, television, and theater every year. Um, the trifecta, I call it. I'm a believer that most of us, no matter how old you are or, or where you end up living the majority of your life, uh, many of us, most of us, are emblematic of the place that we were born if you grew, grew up there. Yes. You are uh, a man, you talk about your relationship with Wynton uh, Marcellus, you are a big easy man. Talk to me about what Nolens has done for you. You know what you've taken from it to give to the world. Oh yeah, I, I am. Uh, I am a man of New Orleans, uh, the northernmost Caribbean city, <laughs> the last Bohemia, the city that cared for guys because people don't care. Laid mm -hmm. back and sort of laissez-faire. We made a way out of no way from the scraps off the kitchen table with a little burnt flour and oil, we concocted a stew known around the world called gumbo, mm -hmm. you know? So give me a little something and I can scrape it up and put it together. It is so emblematic of the American tradition of out of many one, it is really expressed in what we're most famous for in New Orleans, jazz, mm -hmm. right? that we can take that African six 
of the boom, 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 boom. and the brass from Europe, boom, pa, pa, boom, pa, pa, and turned it into boom, pa, 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 jazz, where you actually have to honor the form of the song, but within that, you are free, Mr. Gordon, to improvise and play a solo and be who you are and be an individual because the two can coexist, be technically proficient, but free. And all of that is a very, a very American idea that people um, can have order, but at the same time be free to live an individual life. And there's no place in the world that does that like New Orleans. We swing. We do that with our food. We do that with our music. We sing when we talk. What's going on? Hey, hey. I don't know all you from, from. You from Detroit, right, bro? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, that's in the music. When you trade fours, that's what you're doing with the music. You are literally talking to each other, a musical conversation. And then we, when we speak to each other, we sing. Hey, you know, no matter where you are in the world. <laughs> I have friends who say, man, you cats from New Orleans, man. You'd be in the airport. Say, hey, bro, what? <laughs> you know, all you have to do is, you know him? Actually, no, but he's from mm-hmm. New Orleans, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, that That is who I am. That is who I am. Uh, all of that and a little bit more. Your your love of jazz obviously comes naturally from being from there. Um, give me a sense of what music, A, means to you but also how that maybe rhythmic notion is incorporated in your acting. Oh, yeah. Well, it is. I learned how to do Shakespeare. I know exactly the place where I was when I learned how to do Shakespeare. I was in my first year at Juilliard. I was learning it. I understood it. I understood the meter. And I understand what it was when it was verse and when it was prose. Technically, I knew all of that, but everything was stilted and I could not speak. <laughs> I just it had no, nothing natural about it. And I went to see a, a jazz musician at the Village Vanguard. It was like November 1981. Uh, Arthur Blythe, who's a pretty avant-garde sort of guy, right? Kind of free. And I remember the song even, do little bit of book. Right, it's really hip tune, right? And he was swinging, and I kept humming the tune in my head. And then he started his solo, and his solo, as I said, he's very experimental and avant-garde. Was And as he's soloing, I'm still humming the tune and I'm just looking around the club because I can't get with the solo. I don't understand it yet. And then at one point he comes back to the melody and we are exactly together. And I'm like, how could that be? He knew. And then I realized while I thought he was being free and all over the place, he always knew where the melody was. He always had the form of the song, but he was free within it. And that's when I realized the two can coexist. And so then Shakespeare was opened up to me. A text of a script like Death of a Salesman isn't restrictive to just the words that are on the page. You can change it 
any kind of way mm-hmm. and make it yours and still honor the form by saying all the words. A perfect example, I have a speech where I'm encouraging my boys in Death of a Salesman to go out. It's America. Beautiful towns and fine, upstanding people, right? The finest people. That's the line. But I knew this was a black man who was dealing with all of the racism that he had to deal with. And when I did the line, unlike any other who had ever done it before, I said, America is full of beautiful towns and fine, upstanding people. The finest people. And you knew immediately with just the change of it like that. It was the expression of some of the stuff that he had to go through with these so-called good people, Mm -hmm. these so-called people, right? And that's the way you're able to put your spin on it. And that is jazz. Honor the form, but be free within it and put your spin on it, your improvisation. And then that taught me how to act. The script is the form, but then the way you present it is your personal touch, your uh, improvisation, your solo. I want to ask you about Juilliard, formal training, and one of your trademarks, your voice. Uh, Mm. I I note that you are the voice of Frederick Douglass in the new PBS. uh, Yeah, Becoming Frederick Frederick Douglass. Um, One can have a baritone or a deep voice or a commanding voice, doesn't always have to be deep, but can't always play with it. I'm, I'm, amazed at those like yourself that can act with the voice alone. Yeah. Uh, it is a talent. Um, mm-hmm. Talk to me about how you have trained that muscle, if you will. Yeah, Julia, I, I first just started at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, which was my performing arts high school in New Orleans, and then continued on at Juilliard. And it really taught me um, the physical aspect of all the things that produce your voice, the breathing, your breath, your, your articulators, your teeth, your tongue, the, the, the movable articulators and the, and the immovable teeth and the structure of your jaw, which is a combination of the two, and then the tongue, which is constantly fluid, and the lips, then the placement of breath within the head, you know? Literally, I, I tried to do things where I hold, I've come to a place where I could hold my nose and at the same st- time keep my voice because I'm making sure that the flow stays below the nasal passage, right? So if you grab your nose in the middle of something and all of a sudden you hear that, <laughs> you realize, okay, I want more of the flow to come below my nose. So get in the habit of doing that. And that's a, a bad trick, I guess my teachers would be <laughs> mad for me to be expounding on that. Uh, but, you know, it just makes you make sure that you kind of not that nasal and just keeping it relaxed below and not let it get into your head voice where the air actually flows up and through. So it's training. Training is the best. How to warm up properly. How to warm up your articulators. I'm from New Orleans, so we love to drop our final consonants and all. <laughs> so I have to really work on my, my T's and D's and L's. My nickname at school was Window, right? Because I couldn't say Wendell. <laughs> you know? uh, understanding the difference between a dialect 
and uh, uh, and a dialect and a uh, accent. accent. Yeah, an accent is when English is not your first language. A dialect is when English is your first language, and that's a very important distinction to make because people always say, "Oh, you from the south? Oh, you have an accent." And that always put a demeanor. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it had a demeaning sense to it. Mm-hmm. When actually it was like, no, because of where you're from, you have a dialect, which means you take the sounds that we all make, and because of culturally or weather even, you change it. For instance, as it'll be quick, the southern drawl. Mm-hmm. As you go from the the dry states, where literally the drawl comes from keeping the dust out of your mouth in Texas. How y'all doing? You keep your mouth closed. You don't open it too much or whatever. And it's right there because you just don't want to get nothing in your mouth. That's how it evolved. It literally is the pathology of it. You go further east and it's hot. It becomes humid. It's the same sounds, but then the mouth is more open. Lord, it's hot here mm-hmm. in Mississippi. That's, <laughs> I got to open my mouth. I got to get some air, you know? That's how we talk, all of that. Then you go in between those two and you go to New Orleans and you damn near sounded like Brooklyn because it was the port city. Yeah. Right. So you had you had the 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 the, the consonants and diphthongs of the Africans, the uh, the vowel and diphthongs of uh, African languages. You hear those in African language. You combine that with the drawl. And then you get New Orleans, baby, like this. So you got all the residents and stuff and all that with the Southern draw. So training is the thing. That was a long way. I said I was going to be brief. Yeah, no, <laughs> man, that, that, that's that's extraordinarily interesting because I, I think I think of the people in Detroit who have a draw that is not as heavy as a Southern draw, a true traditional quotes Southern draw, but so many mm-hmm. migrated. Right. That's it. The pathology, the pathology of That's the sound. That's exactly right. That's exactly in right. In Chicago, in Chicago is even more distinct because you could go to Chicago and you'd be talking to a cat and you'd say, oh, you're from the West Side. And they'll say, how do you know? Say, because you sound like you're from Mississippi. Because mm-hmm. everybody mm-hmm. from Mississippi went to the West Side. That's exactly Everybody right. from Louisiana went to the South Side. And so you can hear the distinction just even within the city. Yeah, that's crazy. Let me let me ask you about um those kind of seminal roles you've had on, on, on TV, the wire, obviously you were on suits, Ray Donovan, um, Treme. Is there one that speaks to you more than the other? I always ask singers, you know, what's the one song, maybe not even your favorite, but the one, if somebody said point to the role you want to represent your career, what would it be? Do you have one? Uh, Well, hopefully at the end of this run, it will be this one. <laughs> I hear you. I, I, uh, it will definitely be this when it comes to theater. This is my defining role and moment. It's the collection of them all. Um, and I will always be remembered for Bunk Moreland and the Wire. Mm-hmm. And uh, that ain't too shabby to be remembered for Willie Loman and Death of a Salesman on Broadway and uh, Bunk Moreland and the Wire. Tremay will be the one that people say, but if you really knew Wendell, that would be you. It's Tremay. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. I tell folks just to be able to say you have a defining whatever it may be, 
mm-hmm. is a prize within itself. It, it must be that same way for you. I it mean, has I, been. I mean, the historic, everybody will remember when you got the presidential uh, interview. I, I, that you no know, one and, I, and I tell you, people, here's the funny thing. OJ was probably the most defining moment. It's the one that catapulted yeah. me to a, a much larger audience, obviously. But the, the interview I'm asked most about to this day of all the interviews I've done is the interview I did with Tupac. Oh, wow. Yeah. Generationally, they're kids that weren't even born when I did it, who know me, right. even though I'm much grayer now, uh, right. you know, who know me from that interview. So it's, it's interesting to see, um, to your point, just how the different kind of puzzle pieces come together. Come together. And, and for me, when people ask me, it's not OJ, it's not, it's when I sat down with Mandela the first time. Uh, yeah. You know, so. I have, to, I'm going to watch that one today because I missed it. Yeah, I'm man. Gonna... I'm, 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 you know, we've both been very blessed. Let's just put it that way. Right. Yes. Uh, talk to me about directing. Uh, you know, I know you're getting into that. Is that something that you want to continue to do? Is that something that you aspire to do? And, could you ever see the, the the day where you're not acting anymore and you're just directing? Yeah. You know, my first impulse is to be a producer. Wow. I won the Tony Award as a producer for uh, Clyburn Park. I've produced August Wilson on Broadway, uh, Radio Golf, and Off-Broadway, Jitney. I have uh, produced some of the smaller films that I've been in. I like the idea of putting really good material with the creatives. You know, I would love to see that script with that director and those mm-hmm. actors. So I feel as though the producing, uh, the aspect of producing is as creative. I am now getting into directing um, and I look forward to that. You know, I look forward to that creativity. And I do see the day where that and producing may be more than my acting career. But one of the Great things about acting is you can do it until the day you die, mm-hmm. right? One of the most seminal performances for me was Jason Robards in Magnolia, mm-hmm. where he was playing a man who had terminal cancer when he, the actor, had terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. So he was investigating life's journey all the way until the end. And that's the great thing about being an actor. But I will direct and continue to direct and produce. I'm working on a film project now called Billy. I'm putting together a couple of uh, TV projects that uh, I'll be producing on and acting in. But um, I think I'll always be remembered as an actor. Man, I just want to salute you. You always, from afar, taking your craft seriously. Uh, I appreciate anyone who who does that, whatever mm-hmm. their field and their endeavor. And it, it's always a delight to see you, man, in whatever role you take. I, I appreciate that very much. And uh, the feeling is mutual. Uh, I think you're one of the uh, finest journalists we have in America today. Thank you, brother. Another big thanks to my man, Wendell Pierce. Death of a Salesman is on Broadway at the Hudson Theater, now. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. 
Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media.